Welcome to the Deeper Dive Podcast. Each week we take a deeper look at the texts we covered in worship on Sunday. We do that by discussing things like historical settings, literary context, the way others before us have read the text, and our reflective approach to reading that same text. Well, today on the podcast, uh, Michael Pitzer is here, and we're uh, doing a deeper dive into all kinds of weird things, but uh, more specifically, uh, Pilate, Jesus, John's account of that whole uh, interchange, uh, which is a fascinating interchange it really I is think. yeah um i mean to i don't think you can um over speak by saying the truth was literally on trial here um between Pilate and jesus um and it, you this really was a tough uh sermon for me to kind of figure out where i was supposed to go with it especially um in that weird sunday we you know the before advent but everyone's in that holiday season right. um and, and whatnot. So I did a lot of research, did a lot of digging on different things here and there. Um, and while I'd like to get into um, a topic I did not explore much in the in this sermon, which was the cost of truth in our lives, um, there's just a couple uh, cultural, contextual things that I'd love to just point out for anyone who loves that kind of stuff like I do. Um, the first one has to do with... Uh, kind of the parallel or the symbolism in between the Passover ritual that the Jewish people would be practicing and this trial here. Um, most uh, Christians know that Jesus is that Passover lamb, that he was sacrificed to be that final sacrifice for us. Um, but what I found interesting was there was an actual an allusion to that in the actual trial. Um, so, with the account in John, we see that it ends kind of with Pilate going back to the crowds and saying, I find no fault in this man. Uh, what we don't see but is recorded for us in Matthew is that um, he actually, Pilate washes his hands clean of it, um, signifying that, you know, I'm innocent of this blood that is about to be shed. And then he hands them over to the, um, the people to torture and kill him, right? Well, what I did know is the practice at that time was for whoever it was who was inspecting the lamb for the Passovers, uh, the lambs for the Passover, whether that was the head of the household or most likely um, it was priests in the temple, since that's where they would go and get the, the lambs would be in the temple, that the, the priest would inspect the lamb, and once they found that it was without blemish, they would then go wash their hands of it and pass it on to the um, slaughterer to start the uh, Passover tradition, um, which really it was a practice that came out of a um, Deuteronomy, a law that God said for um, a murder that no one could find who the um, the oh I can't talk about that, the person who committed the murder, yes right. the guilty party um, that it's Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, 6 through 7, um, and basically in verse 7 it says, They shall declare, um, or 6 says, Then all the elders of the town nearest the body shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. They actually had to go and kill a, a cow um, in the same place where the body was found, even though they couldn't find who did it, just signifying that there's a cost of blood for this crime, and that the elders would wash their hands of it, saying, But we are not the ones... Um, guilty of this. So, um, just kind of that significance where here is the lamb brought before the inspector, 
and the inspector declares, I find no fault in this, as Pilate does, and then he washes his hand. And so when Matthew records that, his, his Jewish audience would kind of see that and say, oh, I see what just happened when we practice this every year. And it does point once again to Jesus mm-hmm. being the Passover lamb. <clears throat> so I just, those kind of things I just love. And the more and more how God um, just kind of put the details in place for mm-hmm. um, his people to see and yet they still missed it. Many of them did. Oh, oh sure. Yeah, right Right in the moment there. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, but so, yeah, I just thought that was a, another a great wrinkle or a, a little, another depth layer into mm-hmm. that, that passage there. Yep. Um, <clears throat> another uh, thing that I, I wanted to go into a little bit deeper, but uh, I didn't, and that is um, when Jesus says, I've come to testify to the truth, um, and those on the side of truth listen to my voice. And uh, we, I talked about the being on the side of truth a little bit more, but the listening to my voice, it automatically brought me back to John 10, uh, where Jesus says that uh, he, he's ref- using imagery of a gatekeeper and or of a shepherd and a pen and a gatekeeper. Um, this is where he says one of his I am statements of I am the gate, and actually two, and then he says I am the good shepherd. Um, both of those. But in John 10, 3, he states, The gatekeeper opens a gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought all his, all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not rec- recognize a stranger's voice. So I think uh, when, you're, when you kind of start to put both of these together a little bit, um, Jesus here is talking about my sheep know my voice, and this is that voice of truth that he's talking mm-hmm. about. Um, and, you know, I would have loved to go in a little bit more in depth about especially this any Christmas season, right? How many voices are speaking to us and and trying to get our attention and get us to follow them, whether that's just from a commercial standpoint of you need to buy this, buy this. Um, I don't know how many emails I've gotten for Black Friday sales saying, you need this in your life, come here, follow us. Oh, man, and the subject headers are just, uh, <laughs> they're getting wilder and wilder. Yes, they like. are. Um, and uh, apparently I need to adjust my spam filters a little <laughs> bit for it. Um, but the the idea of we get so busy, so many voices are vying for attention, are we honing in on the voice of Jesus through all of this to the point where we don't we won't recognize the stranger's voice, we'll run away from it, we'll flee from it. Right. Um, and just another cultural uh, context here that shepherds back in Jesus' day in that um, Middle East, during the summer, they would bring their herds out into the fields, and they would have their own, kind of create their own um, pens for them, and the um, shepherd himself would serve as the gate. He would lay down in, in front of the gate and to stop the sheep from passing, and so when Jesus says, I am the gatekeeper, that's what he means. But in the wintertime, they would bring the sheep, all the shepherds would bring all their sheep together in a communal pen. Um, and for me, you know, wondering, well, how do you know which sheep are yours? And do you tag them? Do you just say, I, you know, I deposited 100 sheep, I'm going to withdraw 100 sheep? Right. How does that work? But in reality, sheep actually would know their shepherd's voice and miss all those sheep. If their shepherd spoke, only his sheep would come to him. And they would not come to, they'd actually run away from another shepherd because they wouldn't know that shepherd's voice. And uh, I would long 
long in my own spiritual life to get to the point where um, when Jesus speaks, I can't help but listen and I'm drawn to it. And if another shepherd speaks, I immediately run from that, that it's so tuned in to that voice that I, I want to, um, I, I can't follow anybody else but him. Um, so it's just one of those things that I, I love that cultural imagery, but when it comes to truth then, at, at one point if we put these two together, if that voice is the voice of truth, will we ever? Will I ever get to the point where it, I immediately recognize the lies because it's not the voice that I'm used to hearing? Um, and, uh, and do you get to the point where you get locked in on that, or can it ebb and flow, um, which I tend to think happens in my life, where sometimes I'm really good at recognizing it, and other times um, I'm not? Uh, and I think, for me, that's when I'm closest to Jesus in my life and when I'm not. And I guess if Jesus is truth, that persona, that uh, though when we're drawn close to him, we recognize his voice a whole lot more, and when we're not, we don't as much, and that's when we can be led astray. Um, so just some thoughts that I have about uh, um, listening to the voice of truth um, and just that voice being a person. So it's not even an idea, but all right, Jesus, I want to recognize your voice, and how do we do that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the biggest or most common questions I get in youth ministry is, how do I hear the voice of God? Um, I'm not hearing him. How do I hear God speaking to me? And right here is talking directly about that, I think. Um, so in all of that, uh, as I encourage people in the Advent study to uh, or Advent in this sermon series during Advent to do our best to get as close to Jesus as possible, and whether that's diving into Scripture, whether that's uh, spending time in prayer, um, speaking, but mostly just listening. But uh, to me, the more time we get in, in Scripture, the more we will recognize uh, the voice of Jesus as He speaks to us. But that means intentionally shutting out other voices too, and uh, that gets into the cost of truth in our lives a little bit mm-hmm. as we get into why did. Pilate miss it? Um, why did many of the Israelites miss it? Um, and is that because they didn't hear or they didn't see? Or the, was there something else going on in the matter of the heart? Um, there's uh, many times I will joke that I wish God would show up uh, through email or text or whatnot and just speak to me that way so it's plain and it's clear. Mm-hmm. And God, why don't you just show up? But even when I make those uh, kind of joking statements, well, that's what he did do in Jesus. He showed up, and he was here, and he performed miracles, and he gave, he taught, and all tried to sh- show who God is, and yet people still missed it. And why, how is that even possible? You know, what does that work? And I think that gets into the cost of truth in our lives. And maybe if that cost is too great for us to actually accept the truth, if that makes sense. Uh, talk a little bit more <clears throat> about that, I think. Um, well, if I can actually just use an illustration to kind of start that off. and uh, Oh, com- if you must. All it right. comes from a guy named Abdu Murray, and he uh-huh. is a converted Muslim to Christianity mm-hmm. um, who has uh, kind of made his life um, defending Christianity and uh, um, speaking, sharing his testimony and after speaking at, um, to uh, the public once, and I'm not even quite sure where this was, um, a woman who's a nurse 
and asked him if he would go talk to a patient who was a Muslim, but was asking a lot of questions about Christianity. So he said yes. He ended up going to the hospital, meeting this man, and was addressing a lot of common questions that Muslims have with Christianity. And, and the more they addressed this, kind of the the harder this man got in his um, demeanor and whatnot. And mm-hmm. and realizing that these questions weren't getting anywhere. Um, he uh, Abdu took a, a different path a little bit and started just asking about his life a little bit more. And this man was in the U.S. dying of a disease, and his he has some kids. Uh, he wasn't married at this time, but his kids were the most important things in his life, and he was waiting on them to get there. And uh, finally, Abdu asked him this question. He says, what would happen if you did become a Christian? What would your kids think or do? And he recounts the story saying, um, this man lowered his eyes as a, um, and a slight sigh left his lungs, and he said, they would disown me. It is unforgivable and a shame for me to become a Christian. And here's this man who had the same fears as he was previously Muslim and had to go through the same struggles, could relate to what this man was going through. And is that cost of truth, that if Christianity is true, what would it cost this man to actually say yes, to even consider the possibility that this might be true, would cost this man a, a lot. Um, and I think that cost of truth is, uh, or what, what that is there is, that what we hold on to as the truths in our lives, as the things that are most important to us, if something is true that would cause us to lose those, will we even consider that as being true? Um, I don't know if that's kind of getting into a little bit more of what you're talking about. I, I mentioned for me in the sermon that um, if Christianity isn't true, what would that cost me? And uh, what would I have to come to grips with or be willing to lose if uh, to even acknowledge or be open to the idea that Christianity isn't true? And that is something for us to even have an open heart. We have to be willing to count the cost, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, it, it, it does. And uh, yeah. so scripture is full of these kinds of almost paradoxical. Um, Setups, <laughs> mm-hmm. really, right? So you, you know, when you talk about the cost of truth, um, we're saying we need to give up things that perhaps we would see as uh, beneficial to us, or um, uh, something that um, oh, I don't know. So you measure your your um, <clears throat> how do I say this? You measure whether something's true or not by whether it hurts more to give up this other thing. One could interpret it that way, um, right? I, I would so make the distinction. About I wouldn't how say you that that would that. be that's what validates it, right? But I would say that um, sometimes looking at realities in our lives, we are really good at self-deception, knowing that I would prefer. Th- to do this, even though I might know that it's wrong, I'm going to keep justifying it and self-deceive myself right. because I don't want to give up whatever it is um, that I like, that I love, that sure. I'm. Um, so, but whole whole streams of Christianity have been built on this uh, kind of assertion that um, that we validate or acknowledge um, our exception or our uh, accepting of the truth or salvation by by what we leave behind, mm-hmm. you know, 
Um, and sometimes that gets skewed into not what we embrace, but what we leave behind. So yes. how does, um, how does this text in, in specific kind of speak to that? Um, how does it, uh, mediate that? Does it, uh, push it in one direction or another, knowing that we have, you know, these other texts that are definitely, uh, you know, the truth will set you free. That's certainly, uh, there's no baggage there at all. There's nothing, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that is a, um, certainly a call into a, a, a better experience and not the, um, not even the love of self-deception can, yes. can, can broaden that out. So how, how does that nuance in this discussion, I guess, um, Let me ponder that just a little bit. That's all right. <laughs> um, because I think it does, it gets us into this, you know, weird space where, you know, we talk about truth, but there's, um, <clears throat> there's kind of our, our embrace or our exchange with truth as humans. And, you know, the, the, the category of epistemology, how do we know that we know something? Mm-hmm. And so it's great to kind of speak in all of these, like, well, if we see it, we'll know. If we'll hear the voice, we'll know it. But there's something that seems to be at least built into <clears throat> our um, uh, our our beings that uh, we can't know everything. Mm-hmm. And so if something's there and we can know it, um, can we know it? <laughs> Is it knowable, even if it exists? And... Um, you know, that gets into all of it. People have talked about this for millennia. Yeah. This is nothing new. But, um, but you know, that's what the area that we get into here with this is like, well, um, so people, have, I think, have come across uh, in different strands of Christianity uh, by really wanting to shortcut, I think, to the knowability of this truth. And I think one of those over, over the years have been... Um, if it hurts to give this up, then that's true. Okay. Um, yeah. Which is, we see that in several different kinds of Christian traditions, asceticism, things well, like that. Well, you could look at that uh, in other. F- I was going to say, in the flip, the flip yeah. side, and uh, of course, because you were bringing up something like Islam, which is a which is a faith that seems to be in some strands very much a uh, in a radicalized mm-hmm. version. Um, something that says you need to uh, do these things that you might not like. Yeah, in order to yeah, do this. you need to yeah. sacrifice and right and whatnot. And I mean, and there's scripture that uh, can lead people down that, like Luke fourteen six mm-hmm. or twenty six that says, "If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife oh, and sure. children, brothers and sisters," yeah. and um, or uh, you look at uh, the disciples who left everything to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in in Mark uh, ten twenty one, um, the rich man, rich young ruler, who came to Jesus and said, "You know, I've done all, followed everything. What do I need, still need to do?" And when Jesus says, "Go and sell everything and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me," and at mm-hmm. this, the man's face fell. Um, right. Where um, I would counteract those, and I and I specifically put those out there for that uh, there is a reality of truth might cost you something. It might not, depending on, on what it is. It might, but yeah. also the the gain that you get, um, um, you know, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything, all these things will be added onto you, right. um, speaks of there's something that you gain from it all. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I was wondering about is, 
it's it does take faith. It is a risk and a gamble to say, all right, I want to be open to the voice of truth. I want to be on that side. If if I can only hear right. that voice by being on that side, I want to try to be open to that side, and then I will know mm-hmm. uh, possibly. But I don't know for sure until I'm willing to be open. If that makes sense. Um, oh, certainly. That's that is. Um, I- you know, that's typically, I think, uh, attributed to Augustine, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like you have to um, you have to want to understand mm-hmm. before you can understand. Like there's desire has to precede knowledge in yep. some sense. Otherwise, it's um, well, it's just a misplaced desire. Yes. I guess he would say desire always precedes knowledge that that you wanting to know something about something will always precede your actual knowing of it. Mm-hmm. And or if, vice versa. Well, and if you want to, <laughs> uh, you find what you're looking for, mm-hmm. I guess is in some sense yeah. um, the way that it goes, <laughs> which, you know, I, I think that's kind of hard for 21st century Americans to to kind of get down with, um, mm-hmm. because there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of, um, you know, empiricism left out there. I think that says, no, there is this very, uh, objective other out there that, um, really precedes everything. And I think, you know, what comes around again as early as Augustine is like, no, you're a part of that too. Like mm-hmm. you're not some kind of disconnected observer. Like your desire to want to know this is a part of that knowing. It's not just the facts. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's you and your desire are part of that as well. So as a history major mm-hmm. in undergrad, um, we talked about our biases that we bring to the table all the time, and that could be yeah. a little bit to our desires of what do we want to know, what right. you know, what is that uh, bias that we have, which um, even, I would say, even acknowledging your bias sometimes can feel like a cost sometimes because you don't want to acknowledge that you have a bias, that you have a viewpoint. But yeah. So my, my final uh, paper... Um, that I did to to defend my senior year was a historiography paper, which it's the history historiography is the history of the history of something. Mm-hmm. So I did it on the historiography of the burned over, over district in Western New York in the 1870s, and basically that was a place in time in Western New York where there's a lot of revivals going on. So that's mm-hmm. why they called it the burned over district, okay. and it was fascinating. Because in doing the research in the paper and looking at how that time period was, history had changed over time, um, the bias of or the starting place of where there's nothing supernatural that exists. So right. whenever you're looking at history or whatnot, you can never start with the idea that God exists because you, you just can't start there. So all yeah. the evidence you look at is from that viewpoint or should be from that viewpoint in the scholarly historical world. Um, so when I had to defend the paper and I did it from a viewpoint that God exists, that there could actually have been something spiritually going on here, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, of course, got uh, – um, raked over the coals for that uh, in my defense because they said God cannot exist you can't and if God doesn't exist then all of this would have been manipulation Um, and so I 
called them out on their bias and said, you are, from your standpoint, God does not exist. From my point, he is. And that colors how we would look at this. And so the question then sure. is, to look at the truth, are we both willing to put aside those biases and look at it from from uh, more, as much of an objective viewpoint as possible when it came, comes to the evidence to find the truth? Sure. Although I think, um, I mean, both of you are, are really kind of demonstrating how that's almost impossible, I mean, in a sense. Yes. And so how do we move past this idea that there is some kind of other out there, that we are both, you and your um, you and your belief in God in uh, reviewing this event, and them and their disbelief in God reviewing this event, uh, how do those two work together um, in order to get us, I like what you uh, what you quoted from uh, from Mike there. <laughs> mm-hmm. How do we both become less wrong, less wrong. in this? Yes, um, because their their observations as a um, as an unbelieving uh, uh, skeptic uh, actually can, <laughs> in some strange way. Uh, help us with our perspective, even oh, I definitely think so. coming from a confessional perspective. Yeah. So uh, their their engagement with us, our engagement with that event, their engagement with that event, this kind of strange Trinitarian dance together <laughs> um, to become less wrong. So those those discussions that we have with, uh, I think, I think what you know we've seen kind of escalate at the end of the twentieth century has been this. Um, this really strange uh, kind of we all need to shed our biases in order to find this thing that's sitting out there and we are a part of that thing so we can never do that mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you know you can never fully get rid of your no. biases which is what which is I kind great. of I called yeah. out in my defense mm-hmm. is that um, you didn't realize you had this bias but you did by making this assumption right. that is, is stating that and mm-hmm. um, I completely agree with you in the idea of um, we can learn from each other because they have a perspective that we because of our bias we can't see right? Um, and vice versa right. and uh, apparently I did a good enough job I got an A in the defense so that was good <laughs> um, but uh, the whole, whole idea of being less wrong and approaching people with different um, beliefs different ideas, different thoughts of what the truth might be. Um, one of the things that I did not mention on on Sunday, just for time, is the idea of even claiming Christ as truth. That doesn't mean we go into conversations with our guns loaded when it comes to that, if that's what I, I believe, you know. But how do we as a culture, and especially as a Christian community, approach other ideas with respect, with love, starting off with listening, learning, mm-hmm. and whatnot, and then moving towards, all right, how can we be less wrong together? How have we gotten wrong? Where have we not, where we thought was truth, but really that's just been coated with some dirt that we, <laughs> over years of tradition, that we need to clean that off and, and oh, whatever, sure. the, yeah. you know. Um, so I didn't get to that in, in the sermon, but I think that is highly important and missing um, so much in today's culture, yeah. especially social media platforms, but those just aren't good platforms for that what, anyway, I what, think. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, and it's, uh, I say this facetiously, I guess, it's terrible that we don't have any examples in Scripture about that happening. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of the the uh, crazy parts of the book of Acts are 
the early church trying to figure this out from each other. Yes. Um, you know, Paul and Peter do not see eye to eye. Mm-mm. And, you know, I would say even by the end of their own lives, they don't see eye to eye. And nobody seems to be, you know, calling uh, them on the carpet for that. No. And uh, you know. Spirit was mo- still moving. Church was still growing. Yes. All of that, even though that uh, they would disagree. And, and they just weren't sure. And there's... No, and their and their 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 dialogue uh, in some ways together, um, while still you know interpreted by one of Paul's associates, so mm-hmm. you, you can whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's still I think a healthy a healthy example there of uh, not just uh, believers and, and unbelievers um, having a dialogue, but uh, Christians in general having a dialogue together and having something good come out of that. Uh, and it's something that really neither one probably saw, uh, you know, of their own, mm-hmm. of their own accord, which I think is great. Um, yeah, yeah, quite fun. Well, it's uh, it's one of the things I liked about the, the passage and the idea of, of truth being a person in Jesus Christ, and that is as a church, instead of just trying to debate ideas and doctrine and whatnot. Um, knowing that none of us have the complete picture, right. um, and uh, eventually one day we will. But until then, our pictures can become more complete the closer we get to Christ. Um, and not to say that that's easy or or whatnot, but I think that is um, to do that. I think takes humility to say, you know what, I don't know everything. I don't know this reality that you have put set forth into being and whatnot, and so I'm going to lay down what I think is true, and I'm just going to keep getting closer to you and keep revealing it and keep revealing it and questioning and questioning. And I think too often um, Christianity is wrongly painted as a faith where you can't question, um, that uh, you can't uh, doubt and you can't um, have uh, just be unsure. Um, and yet I think that's really what grows our faith the most is when we question and we doubt and we challenge, right. um, especially when we do it together as Christians mm-hmm. um, and not just not isolated doubting and questioning, but when we challenge each other as Christians and come together as a family and just keep doing that in love, mm-hmm. um, in grace, in mercy. Um, I To me, that is where the kingdom um, starts to shine the most, but as far as ideas and doctrines and whatnot. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> Nothing like uh, truth to be a um, topic of truth to be a little, uh, um, oh, man, I can't even think of the words. Uh, I don't say taboo almost these days, but uh, uh, it's just something that people don't want to jump into and, and talk about. It's almost like religion and politics. You throw truth in there too. Is can there actually be a truth or not? People just—it's not—it's not polite to talk about it anymore. No, I think it's become well, much like the first century, so wrapped up in uh, power that it, yes, that it is—it's um, just problematic to mm-hmm. even have a discussion. And I think that's that's why we see Pilate cast in that that sense there is he's very concerned with power up front. Mm-hmm. He's like, are you a king? Or are you not a king? Like, mm-hmm. is this a power threat? Is this not a power threat? Yeah. And, um, you know, our, our current culture is, I think, more infatuated with power than knowledge. That's mm-hmm. for sure. 
um, and is more infatuated with um, the ability to wield power instead of whether something is uh, virtuous or yes. true, oh, which yeah. is what we would, you know, virtue is just truth in action, I think. And that's, and, uh, you know, those things have uh, fallen, I don't know, they fallen out of fashion maybe, but they seem to not hold the weight um, that they once once did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've been corrupted along the way and they'll be reformed and corrupted and reformed and corrupted and reformed and corrupted and, you know. But it's, uh, you know, you move from um, pre-modern and the source of truth for many people being something divine, something otherworldly, um, to the modern mm-hmm. era where you take out the otherworldly and it's what can you test and prove and sense, you know, and all that kind of stuff, to mm-hmm. postmodern where it's all about experience um, to now we're moving to a post-postmodern where it's almost all about feeling, even necessarily not even just what you experience, but how does that experience make you feel? And mm-hmm. um, and now you couple that with social media where if I have a feeling where someone has hurt me, therefore that person must be wrong because I'm feeling hurt, and now I can get a mob mentality around me and add power to my feeling, yeah. and we can just you know, devour whatever it is that made me feel bad. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's a very interesting uh, kind of assessment practice to look at those side partners of truth and power through, uh, you know, the historical record and to see how one affects the other and how we uh, start to deal with, um, well, how do we locate and, um, uh, how do we locate and kind of manipulate power as uh, people or leaders or persons or whatever and then how do we um, you know kind of what's the general ethos on on truth mm-hmm. and it, it's they're in tandem mm-hmm. <laughs> well and even looking at that it makes me love Jesus being truth even more because you look at the power that he gave up while still holding that truth and still witnessing to that truth, yet from just the glory of heaven coming down into human body, into a corrupt world, that loss of power to, um, you know, washing his disciples' feet and getting take, stepping down from the place of uh, authority at the table of the Last Supper, to even in that conversation with Pilate where other Gospels talk about, uh, have more of the conversation where Jesus says, you are not condemning me of your own power. I have more power than you do. I am right. letting you do this and right. giving up this power while still testifying to the truth and um, willing to yeah. give up that power <laughs> while holding on to reality. You know, what's so absurd about that is that we – you know, we read that from a kind of a Colossians one perspective where we go, this is the cosmic Christ who created the universe, mm-hmm. you know, telling Pilate that like, no duh Pilate, you know, but that's so, that's, that's not a great reading of that. I mean, it would seem absurd to Pilate to mm-hmm. hear that from oh, yeah. him. Like you don't have any, you don't have any authority here. There's no authority. And Jesus knows that as well. It's not like he's saying, Hey, I got a secret going on here. He's going, you know what? Authority doesn't mean anything in this context right here. Mm-hmm. That that right now I don't have any authority. You're right. But that also gives me authority. Like there, there's it's not like uh, you know, I'm I'm packing heat here under the robe that's cosmic in nature. 
there's a real humility there that yeah. that is the thing that is the good well that's the, that's the thing is that humility that Jesus brought along with the truth that is power um, that <laughs> makes it more powerful yep. than um, it's that to me um, so God is love and God is truth it's fully both of those um, and you see that in in Jesus and same I think the same thing works with love that the more you sacrifice in your acts of love the more powerful it is and the more you are humble in your truth the more powerful it is right um, and yet yeah. we in the world and even in the church operate differently than that yes yep power redefined for sure yes yeah well what else did you uh, did you want to get to here uh, for the most up, part, I that think. just kind of sums up uh, the things it, that get everything there. Yeah, that All I right. was uh, looking at adding on to this. Um, I just, uh, even in my own life, still trying to wrap around, wrap my head around, what does it mean for truth to be a person? This is what if if it's um, relational, like that means that truth mm-hmm. is relational here, and it's not just a, an abstract idea. What does that mean, and how does that impact me? And um, kind of getting back to what we were talking about, mm-hmm. that if Jesus is a testimony to that, that humbleness, the uh, mercy that he showed, all of those kind of things then should impact how I learn, view, and use truth in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, and then to, again, to kind of keep thinking about what does this mean for the season of Advent? Um, When Jesus says, for this reason, I came to testify to the truth. and uh, does that change how I view Advent? And that's something I'm still str- struggling with in a good way, purposeful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. yeah, great. All right. Well, thanks for coming in, sitting down. No problem. And, Thank uh, you for the conversation. And uh, next week we'll be back uh, jumping into uh, that first Sunday in Advent, uh, looking at Jesus as a creator, being around at the very beginning, looking at some things in the first part of John and in Genesis and a little bit in Matthew. So until then, grace and peace. Mm-hmm.